invite you to turn to the book of James, chapter 3 is where we'll be today. I had to whittle down my original plan of preaching 12 verses to 4 today after I started studying and I was hoping we could actually get through the book of the Bible in less than two years, but we probably still will. Yes. Yes. In my studies, I came across two approaches to this passage of James 3, 1 through 12. And I saw them both very clearly, so I guess in some ways, well not in some ways, I do intend to preach on both of them as opposed to doing what my commentators seem to have suggested, and that is this passage is either on one subject or the other, but probably not both. And I said, why not both? <laughs> I couldn't help but really extract truths from both ideas. The odd thing is that James starts this third chapter with one measly little verse about addressing teachers and their teaching in particular, and then he seems to move rather quickly to talking about the tongue and the mouth for all Christians. But a more prolonged examination over the passage, some have speculated that James talks about teachers in the church and how they affect the congregation in more than just one verse. And if that is the case, it could be possible that James really did have in mind about teachers and congregations, rather than just generally Christians keeping their mouths in check. So we're going to talk about this more as we begin, but I invite you to stand one last time in honor of hearing God's word. So if you're able to stand, please stand for James chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and we are, and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Let's pray. Father, moments ago, and as we prayed in silence, I prayed the Lord's Prayer. I, I saw that passage where it says the, the kingdom of hell will not be able to prevail against, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against your kingdom. And Father, we know that that's a defensive term. The gates are a defense. That means you're on the offense. So, Father, would you invade our lives today? Speak to our hearts, our minds. Father, let not the kingdom of, enemy, of darkness prevail against you, but have your way in our hearts and our minds. In order to accomplish that, we need to hear your voice. So I pray you would move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. Father, would no heart in here go left unchecked? And would everybody have the humility of obedience, especially me? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe yeah. see that. Okay. 
Christian teachers have a high standard. Big shoes to fill. His name is Jesus. I noticed this from the get-go whenever we we started studying the book of Mark 15,000 years ago. And perhaps it's not something most people think needs stating or emphasizing, but Jesus is first and foremost a preacher. I say that even Jesus makes it a point to say, hey, before all things, I'm a preacher. We see this in Mark 1, and I've used this passage, and I made this point a time or two in my preaching, so bear with me, you're going to have to hear it again. But Mark draws back the curtain in his first act, and we see Jesus is going about teaching and preaching. But then healings start to happen. Demons start to be exercised. Illnesses start to be healed. And every time people are healed, Jesus does it in this awkward, silent way, like he's hiding something. It kind of comes to a climax one weird night where Mark 1.33 tells us that literally an entire city is at Jesus' door waiting to be healed. Like a free lemonade stand, Jesus is just healing people left and right. And after that long, long night, Jesus gets up early, Mark tells us. It says, in rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Do you hear the vocation in that? Jesus says, Let's go to the next towns, right? Even though there are more people waiting to be healed, why go to the next town, Jesus? There's ministry here, Peter might ask. Jesus responds that I may preach. For that is why I came out. Jesus is first, foremost, decidedly a self-proclaimed preacher. Jesus' teaching is his primary vocation. You make a good healer, Jesus, and Jesus would say, but I'm first a preacher. And we Christians should make assumptions, because these are good assumptions, that Jesus was the best teacher and preacher who ever lived. I mean, by virtue of believing that Jesus is God, you'd have to say that, hands down, not even an issue. I mean, we can invite fallen human beings to judge him. Oh, I give Jesus a 7 out of 10. He quoted the too much Old Testament and not enough connections to cultural happenings, right? We can't do that. If you read between the lines, though, in the Gospel accounts, Jesus is being critiqued for his preaching. He's being critiqued for foregoing the traditions of the scribes. He's authoritatively making interpretations on the scripture. He's claiming to be God. He's forgiving sins. He's doing what seems to be contrary to the laws of the Sabbath. He's healing in between sermons on a Sunday, or I guess a Saturday. Just almost, it's almost as if Jesus just saw himself in a league of his own. Because he is. What's interesting then? as we consider Jesus as teacher and preacher, is what he commissions his disciples to do before he ascends. Matthew records it this way. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. As we consider the wisdom James has today on teaching, I want you to hear two things. The Bible makes it clear that many Christians have the gift of teaching, and it is important that all Christians, whether they are teachers or not, know what the Bible says about teachers and teaching. Secondly, for those of you who think a sermon is not valuable unless it has some immediate relational context to you, know this, Jesus commands all disciples to be teachers of the observances of Jesus. So we enter James' teaching, and he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. One of the first things, if not the very first thing, my mentor and pastor told me when I approached him about feeling called in the ministry was run. I've mentioned from the pulpit before, just to let you a little bit on, in on ministry, not to make you all nervous or feel guilty or lecture you, but you know, some of you might tell me that, that farming life is beyond the field and the tractor, so let me tell you a little bit about pastoral life beyond the pulpit. Pastors are dropping out of ministry more every year than they do enter ministry. Burnout, exhaustion, moral failure, and the like are ep epidemic. Chalk it up to the enemy not wanting pastors to do their job, but pastoring can be hard work. I feel very graciously welcome here. I didn't plan on going three trips back to back this year, but thank you that I could. I feel like you all treat me very well, and I find little to stress about here in Woodland. In fact, sometimes I feel guilty that I should stress more. Like, should I care more? Am I not caring enough? You know, I, I don't know. Many of you have to work with your hands, your bodies, your tractors. Teachers have to work with their mouth. And James gives verse 1 as a preface of verses 2 through 12, where he basically states the most diabolical and most easily destructive and sinful part of the body is the mouth. Which means we teachers have easy access to sinning. That's a scary thought. I know we pastors joke that you don't, but hopefully the odds are you're receiving a lot of things I'm saying up here, so are you receiving stuff that's glorifying to God? Is what's coming out of this sinful vessel's mouth helpful or harmful? It says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. The first thing I learned, or one of the first things I should say I learned as I began my trek into ministry, is what everybody else learns once they really get to know a pastor personally, and that pastors are people too. <laughs> Nowhere in my ministry prep did I undergo purgatory where all my sins and flaws and failures and, you know, regular people problems vanished. I did not pick up an intrinsic love of prayer, devotional reading, and Bible studying overnight. In fact, to this day, I still fight temptation and fight bouts with sin. We all stumble in many ways. There are times when, even though I preach from manuscripts, which is why I don't look at you enough and I'm looking at this a lot, Perhaps what I put down here on the manuscript for me to say is not what should be said. By God's grace, I pray that he checks me and you hear the good and throw out the bad. And beyond the pulpit, I confess what I say face to face, or what I do reveals the truth of this passage. We all stumble in many ways. 
And this isn't a statement of fact so as to be content with it, but rather a push for teachers to strive for maturity. As James goes on to say, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. He is a mature man, a man who has reached a form of completion. This word perfect, it's the Greek word teleos. And in Bible scholar and commentary land, it's a word loaded with the name. You have some people on one side saying, no one can be perfect. James is basically saying sarcastically, someone who doesn't stumble in what he says is dead because he's in heaven, perfected. <laughs> then you have other people who say, oh no, you can be teleos, perfect, mature, this side of heaven, and then around and around we go. When we hear teleos, think full-grown, think mature or adult, any of you adults, I'm pretty sure you are. Listen to this same word used in alternate verses. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be teleos, mature. That's our word, perfect. We're to be perfect in our thinking. That's a command for here and now. Be infants in evil. Don't practice it, don't do it, but in your thinking be mature. Be aware of sinfulness of people. Don't be naive, be perfect discerners when it comes to evil. That's a here and now thing. We can be mature thinkers this side of heaven. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature, that's our word, to perfect, mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says the reason for godly teachers is to produce godly saints. Mature saints, perfect saints, a here and now thing. So James is saying, hey, people who don't stumble this way with the mouth, they're adult Christians. They're grown-up Christians. They're mature Christians. The opposite is true, as we've noted before. James is rather blunt. I call this the book of ouch. He's saying baby Christians who can't keep clean mouth should not be teachers. We live in a world that, that loves equality, that loves fairness, and it sounds almost as if James is being exclusive in his demands for wanting a teacher here. That's because he is. And that's good reason. And I believe it's implied in the latter part of verse 2 here. He says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Verse 2 is kind of a transitional verse, because as I made mention to, to begin with, it seems as if James 3.1, James has honed in to teach on the, the preachers and teachers, but then it becomes very evident as we move into verses 2 through 12, 
that James is talking about the sins of the mouth on people, period, not just teachers. As in, Christians who want to be teachers need to think again, and here's why we all have this problem. That is the primary thought on the progression of this passage. But notice in verse 2 that James may be alluding to how the tongue, the teacher, affects the whole body, the whole congregation. See, Paul sees the Corinthian church as a body. You know the passage, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. 1 Corinthians 12. Some have taken that concept and thought that they see it here in James 3. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. As in a healthy teacher who is able to not stumble with his mouth, is able to then bridle the whole flock under his teaching. Does that make sense? Some people see it that way. It was made aware to me once by a ministry leader who oversees lots of different churches and pastors of all different stripes. He's actually what you would call a pastor to pastors. So he's seen many churches, many different denominations, and he said to me one day, isn't it amazing how a church adopts the personality at times of his pastor? I was like, oh boy. And I thought for a minute, I have lots of what I consider sins in my personality, and I hope I'm not passing that on to the congregation. It was really an overwhelming prospect. But I remember week after week when I grew up, I heard what my pastor taught primarily in conversation with him. I told him, I I took note, this is how Pastor Hunter, who I look up to because he's our pastor, this is how he talks, this is his personality, this is his sense of humor, and this is what it sounds like in personal conversation. This can go for all teachers in the church. Sunday school teachers, elders, friends, this goes for you in your spheres of influence, commanded by Jesus to be teaching what he taught to all people. What we say and what we do, let us be mature in our speaking. Because in our maturity, whether we know it or not, or they know it or not, we're being watched. What we say say gets repeated. What we say may be believed as gospel truth, so is it gospel truth. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Again, we lived in a world we live in a world that is that is fixated on equality. Everything, every role, every activity, we're all worried about everyone and everything feeling equally appreciated. But here's the thing, I just read an article last week that the number one reason people love, hate, come to, or leave the church is what? What the church is preaching. That's the number one reason in this article. That even topped over hymns and music selection. (laughs) What the church is preaching. So this simply is what it is. This is not any backhanded slaps to other necessary and appreciated functions in the church as the mouth, the tongue cannot say to other necessary functions of the church, I don't need you. But the teaching, James tells us, is something that is judged with greater strictness because there is greater responsibility on the part of teachers and teaching. It's a dangerous job. I'm charged to give you truth. Those teaching Sunday school are charged with delivering truth. Those of you who witness the people are charged to witness with the truth. 
Because the mouth is a small part of the body, but it drives the body. Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And for good or evil, for better or worse, for godliness and glory to God and holiness, or for ungodliness and glorifying man and ungodly unholiness, whatever the small mouth speaks, it has giant implications for those who hear and follow. Like a small bit that guides a horse, or a small rudder, pulpit, going where the ship, the body of believers, goes by the will of the pilot, the teacher. We're told unashamedly in the Bible that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And we're commanded by Christ Jesus at the Great Commission to go make disciples and teach all that God has commanded. Such a great task on such a vulnerable part of our body. Perhaps Jesus commands it that way so he gets the glory when it is successful. I remember sitting in a ministry planning setting, not part of this church, but the ministry planning setting, I remember, I remember suggesting the idea that we, we uh, plan a, and pray for a worship gathering uh, over a span of three nights. We invite a speaker, we pray for revival, we pray for the spiritual maturity of the saints in that, and we pray for uh, non-believers to be saved. And I heard rather quickly the ideas of that's outdated, right? It, it, it worked in Billy Graham's era, but we don't have Billy Graham, and it's not the 50s anymore. So rather, I was told that a, well, not a better, but another proposed idea was to basically set up this inviting carnival-like atmosphere, services available to all demographics, let's have bounce houses for kids, and food available, maybe a band playing, and well, let's just make the sermon or the preaching available, but not the central cornerstone key feature of whatever this church carnival atmosphere was. The suggestion came from someone older than me that I respected, and so instead of acting on my impulsive reaction, which was to strongly disagree with them, uh, and suggest that this new idea was just as disliked by me as my idea was disliked by them, I instead patiently submitted and said, sure, let's go with that. And eventually the whole thing was scrapped altogether in favor of a different ministry altogether, completely devoid of preaching. I could not pinpoint what I did not like about that idea other than the fact that I was a preacher and I like preaching. And I wasn't suggesting that I was going to be the preacher at this event. But I, So maybe I thought all people should like it, my personal taste, and maybe my love for preaching was just born from personal preferences, and so I thought maybe I need to be more open-minded. I've been reading a book that is in, that is in large part of, about the idea of revival. In this book, the author is very careful to say that revival is in some ways, not something you can write down on the calendar or put into a formula or mechanically expect results. So let's not plan a three-day thing and call revival on the calendar and invite a preacher. Rather, revival is, in the historical sense, a surprising work of God. And so surprising, by its very definition, I wasn't expecting that. However, this book went over historical recorded revivals from the Bible and from history, and guess what they all have in common? Powerful proclamation of God's word. Whether they be in the Bible like the one recorded in Josiah's reform in 2 Kings 22, 
this is amazing if you don't know the story, it's in Israel, and they find this weird book in the temple. It's called the Book of the Law. And it's not been read from or kept. And when it was found, it was ordered to be taught, and the people in the kingdom was reformed. Or in Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, when Ezra and Nehemiah returned to rebuild Jerusalem, Ezra the priest is tasked with reading the law, so he just opens up and reads it, and it takes half a day. How many of you would sit still? They had to stand, but would you sit still if I just read for half a day Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? But once it is read, conviction falls on the crowd, revival starts. How about the birth of the church? Peter preached in Acts 2.41 tells us about 3,000 souls are saved. Revival. God moves, the mouth speaks revival. This book that I've been reading about revival opened up a chapter quoting another author and teacher who said, if we lose the pulpit, we lose the church. If we lose the church, we lose the world. Christians, all of us are tasked with a ministry from the mouth, whether it be preaching and teaching or one-on-one communication. Our mouths have the ability to plant seeds of faith or plant seeds of discontent, to do a great good or to do great evil. Practical takeaways from this sermon. Three things. The church's teachers need your prayers. The teaching of all believers needs to be checked. And thirdly, the kingdom of God grows through the teaching of the Word of God. The church's teachers need your prayers. I I do covet your prayers, and I don't say that in a way of saying, hey, devote time to think about me with God. But more of a, I feel weak and underqualified, and if you're not praying for your pastor, I shouldn't be a pastor. And many of you do, and, and you voice that you do, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Beyond the pastoral teacher, your Sunday school teachers, your elders, Your church leaders, local and worldwide, pray for them. Pray for them. Many church teachers, for good reason, have left sour tastes in the mouths of Christians. But now it seems like, as a just as a demographic, they're (laughs) underappreciated. And many assume that people like me, again, have undergone some sort of purgatory where all my regular people problems have vanished. Meanwhile, our standard of teaching, Jesus of Nazareth, hands down, best teacher ever, not even a contest, the most perfect teacher who ever lived, was chased down by his own church and then hung on the cross. Thankfully, that was God's plan to save us from sin, but the fact that in the minds of his pursuers he was a heretic kind of sets the stage for what Bible teachers might expect at times, persecution. So pray for them. Christians need to stop treating church like a consumer service. Hebrews 13, 17 through 18 states it well. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, says the author, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. That's a good transition to our second takeaway, that, that it is the teaching of all Christians that need to be checked. James is not just talking about false teaching on account of doctrine, but on account of moral character. The author of Hebrews again stated, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. We're going to talk about more of the sins of the mouth 
next week. But we fallen ministers are constantly running our mouths. We need to be on guard. Meanwhile, all of us feel leery about personal witnessing at times because of the conversation we might have. Will we have all the answers? Will they reject us? I have about 10 to 12 pages of words every week, and I must be very careful. The same book on revival that I was reading really struck me, a passage of it, and it said, Passion is born out of the soul, not out of the lungs. Louder preaching does not equal better preaching. At best, a loud yet dispassionate preacher comes across as insincere if not angry. The listeners of this kind of preaching will only feel yelled at and likely shut down. Beyond the pulpit, or beyond the witness, what does your home life, what does your relationship life look like according to your tongue? We'll talk about that more next week. But we need to be checked, though, by the Spirit in our teaching at all times. Thirdly, the kingdom grows through the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. What is amazing to me is what James is stating. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. Basically, he's saying not many of you should be teachers because you can't pronounce teacher right. I mean, uh, but we're all prone to stumbling with our mouths. But we know that faith comes by hearing. We know that we're all called to be teachers in some measure of the gospel. We know that the seeds of the gospel are planted upon hearts through the word of God, whether that be the recorded word in our Bible or the spoken word inspired by the Spirit, that as James tells us elsewhere, it plants on hearers and it saves souls. The most prone to sin instrument in our body, God redeems and uses to grow his kingdom. That seems like a weird place to lay your hat on. God saved 3,000 souls using the mouth of Peter. The fact that the Spirit uses our mouth and his word to grow his kingdom is good news, because you know what that means? You don't need lots of money to buy bounce houses, or a good rock band, or smoke and mirrors, or good coffee, though I could always go for a good cup of coffee, so let's just have Yeah. But you need, and when I say you need, you desperately need, you longingly, wholeheartedly need the word of God in your soul and on your lips to grow the kingdom of God. Revival does not start with a calendar or clockwork or formulas or mechanics. God needs a humble servant with a burning heart for his word to get that word to others. I started off by saying that Christians, teachers, have big shoes to fill. His name is Jesus. The great news of the gospel for you and me, whether you're behind the pulpit or doing the dirty work face to face, is that Jesus has given us his shoes. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the power to become mature with our mouths. Amen? Let's pray. Father, part of the reason I struggled with this passage is because, as I illustrated at another time, I hope this wasn't from personal preference or a topic I like to talk about, but rather it was what your word was saying through James. Heavenly Father, would you give us the power to not be so 
judgmental and playing God when it comes to our teachers. But rather that we would extend grace, lots and lots of grace, perhaps we can stop extending grace whenever you stop extending us grace. Which is never. Not to say that we allow false, false doctrine to be teached or blatant sin to go unchecked or, or unconfronted, but at the same time, we would remember that none of us have gone to purgatory. But rather, we're all works in progress. And would you help us to pray for our teachers, especially the teachers we really dislike? Father, would you help us to be in check that we deliver truth when we witness? Not only truth in word, but truth in deed and action, the way we act. Father, they see us whenever we don't realize it. Father, we're so grateful that all it takes to grow your kingdom is your word, because we have access to it. Whether it be your word in the scriptures, or your word given to us and through us by your spirit. Father, would we take these things with us throughout this week? Perhaps some of us need to write some names down so we can be praying. Perhaps some of us need to be reading our scriptures so we're ready in and out of season to testify about the truth and the hope we have. Father, if we want to see somebody saved, when's the last time we talked to them? So would you help us in these areas? Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. Most of all, your son, Jesus. We ask that you pray these things in his name. Amen.